Welcome to this archived LDN Research Trust conference presentation. We hope you enjoy it. Hello, I, my name is Ulrich Lanius. Uh, I'm a psychologist in Vancouver, British Columbia, and uh, my specialization is in traumatic stress syndromes and PTSD, and I have a particular interest in dissociative symptoms. And today I'm going to talk about uh, adjunctive pharmacological interventions for dissociative symptoms in traumatic stress syndromes, particularly the use of naltrexone and opioid antagonists uh, for dissociative symptoms. Uh, when we talk about uh, traumatic stress and dissociative symptoms, what we're talking about are a multitude of different and often related symptoms. Uh, one is dissociative amnesia, which is essentially an alteration in memory where people don't remember aspects of the trauma, aspects of periods of their life uh, surrounding a traumatic event. They don't have any recall. And we'll talk about that later. Opioid antagonists uh, usually have uh, a reversal of amnesia associated when you t take them. There's also derealization where the external world seems unreal, uh, unfamiliar, strange. Uh, depersonalization, there's an altered state of self-awareness, sometimes out-of-body experiences. And then there's identity confusion and alteration where people don't feel like they are themselves, where there's switching between states of self. Sometimes there's no awareness uh, when that happens. Sometimes there is. Um, flashbacks are a dissociative symptom, which is kind of an uh, experiencing of traumatic events as if the event was happening right now, even though it isn't. And uh, another common dissociative symptom is symptom is the loss of emotional regulation where there's an extreme instability of mood and kind of changing of mood uh, and inability to normally regulate your mood. Further, there's what's called alexithymia, an inability to feel emotion, kind of an emotional numbness, a lack of connection to one's feelings. And then finally, there's uh, what's called somatoform dissociation, where there's somatic medical symptoms, uh, usually without an underlying medical cause uh, that present. Uh, sometimes they're uh, significant in the sense that they relate directly to the trauma that was experienced. Sometimes uh, there's no clear relationship. So when we talk about uh, dissociative symptoms, there's a number of diagnoses uh, that are associated with it. One is uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, the dissociative subtype, which is now in DSM-5. Then there is 
depersonalization and derealization disorder, uh, dissociative amnesia, dissociative identity disorder, uh, and then there's a number of other specified dissociative disorders like possession disorder and trance disorders. Um, there are, are unspecified dissociative disorders, which used to be dissociative disorder not otherwise specified in the old uh, DSM-4, uh, and there's conversion and somatoform disorders. Dissociative symptoms are also prominent in what's called borderline personality disorder, as well as you find dissociative symptoms in a variety of other psychiatric diagnoses, like anxiety disorders, depression, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia. They all may have presentations that include uh, dissociative symptoms of one form or another. So when we talk about trauma and attachment, what brings us uh, to this vulnerability to exhibit dissociative symptoms? One thing we know from animal studies that essentially early caregiving or lack of it has an effect on the opioid system. Uh, an early study in in the 70s showed, for instance, that lack of caregiving during the first few weeks of life in mice uh, results in a decrease in the number of opioid receptors. So there's fewer receptors to bind to released opioids, and we know that uh, stress, the stress response is associated with a fairly massive release of endogenous internally generated opioids so there is decreased modulation so rather than having a dimmer switch when there's a release of opioids under stress uh, it's kind of a, like an off-on switch uh, so there's much decreased modulation when you have fewer opioid receptors in all likelihood. Uh, so here are some images of uh, a couple that experienced an identical uh, traumatic stressor, uh, which was a motor vehicle accident. Um, uh, one was a male uh, the other one was a female, so there may be some gender differences, but in all likelihood, uh, I would attribute uh, the differences you see uh, to the underlying attachment history. Uh, so here's the image of the male, so you can see uh, some activation in the brain uh, when these are images that are done when somebody is in the, an MRI scanner and they're recalling their traumatic event. Uh, and so it shows the images of uh, cerebral blood flow in the brain. So there's some activation in the brain here um, in the uneventful childhood history. And then when you go to the person with attachment problems, uh, there's much less uh, 
brain activation, so the brain is shut down. So this is an example of PTSD with the social subtype. So there's a shutting down of the higher cortical areas. So when when you get to uh, the, and the difference between those uh, the uneventful childhood uh, and we're going to the next slide now with the history of PTSD with attachment problems uh, there's the, this much less activation and the difference in the history was in the uneventful childhood was exactly that the person with a history of attachment problems uh, had a lack of a positive relationship uh, with one parent and the loss of one parent at age 12. So these are fairly normal experiences uh, that somebody might have, uh, certainly normative in the population, but they may have a great impact down the road when somebody experiences a major stressor. When we talk about uh, Defensive emotions, uh, I'll, I'll talk about uh, what's called the basic affective circuits, uh, uh, which is a term coined by the late Jak Panksepp, who looked at mammalian emotions. Uh, and one of the things he suggested that there's a hierarchical uh, progression of emotional responses in response to threats and uh, stressors. So there's both active uh, emotional responses and passive responses. So when an animal is under threat, under stress, the first uh, response is a seeking response, an orienting for safety. And uh, usually in most mammalian uh, there is a drive to look for safety in a primary attachment figure. In a young animal, it looks for uh, the mother and tr looks for safety by connecting to that primary attachment figure, and humans, obviously, the same. If there is no primary attachment figure available for seeking safety, uh, usually there is uh, another affective response uh, that's either rage or anger, so it's a fight response. Um, the, the, the organism is trying to protect itself uh, by fighting back. In a young animal, obviously, that uh, is not uh, always possible, especially if the predator is larger or more powerful, and so that response is usually thwarted pretty quickly, and then it moves towards fear, flight, escape, escaping, and avoidance, so, so trying to escape from the threat. Again, if the pathways are blocked and uh, the, the organism can't escape, then it goes to the 
passive uh, defensive response, which is panic, a freeze, immobilization, despair, and ultimately death of the or organism. So at that point, you have a strong parasympathetic activation in the nervous system with the nervous system kind of working towards shutting down and becoming immobile. So how are these active defensive responses uh, mediated in the brain? One area that seems to mediate these uh, defensive responses is what's called the periaqueductal gray, often referred to as PAG. It's uh, a lower brain structure. If you look uh, for it, you find it at the upper part of the brainstem, so it's uh, the subcortical brain area. So when we talk about the periaqueductal gray of, of particular interest uh, to us in this case is the ventral lateral periaqueductal gray. This is an area that's related to immobilization. Um, it has a high density of uh, opioid receptors and essentially when there's physical restraint, uh, you get immobilization uh, in the animal. Uh, when you do electric or cholinergic, stimulation, uh, you get immobilization, uh, also called, sometimes referred to as tonic immobility, freezing, learned helplessness. And with that uh, immobilization, uh, there's also an effect on respiratory function. So there's a shutting down of uh, the breathing. So there's decreased uh, oxygen intake uh, and more shallow breathing. In the longer term also uh, the elicitation of immobilization is associated with compromised immune function. And we know that uh, naltrexone reduces uh, the effects of uh, essentially the physical restraint, uh, the and the immobilization effects and also has an impact on uh, improving immune function. So when we use naltrexone, we decrease immobilization uh, and we bias the nervous system towards the more active defensive responses. So we talked about seeking, we talked about rage, we talked about uh, the flight response. So all those active defensive responses become more likely because essentially you're making it less likely that the organism is going to slip into the passive defensive response of immobilization. So now essentially when we use an opioid antagonist, uh, at some level, we are producing a withdrawal from opioids. And 
So there seems to be, based on animal research, there's likely a differential effect uh, depending on the context within which this opioid withdrawal occurs. If there's a safe relationship available, there tends to be an oxytocin uh, release. In the absence of such a safe relationship, uh, instead of oxytocin, there's vasopressin release. So the oxytocin release uh, usually works towards seeking attachment connection versus uh, vasopressin will produce a fear or rage response, so fight or flight. So this is a, a really crucial piece uh, in the understanding of uh, how people with traumatic stress syndromes will respond to opioid antagonists, including naltrexone. In the, in the absence of a safe relationship, uh, the likelihood of using naltrexone successfully is much decreased because it will trigger the, the fight or flight response, which is aversive to m many individuals. So uh, this is an important piece to keep in mind. Uh, there have been quite a few studies uh, using opioid antagonists in traumatic stress. Uh, so the first study goes back to 1993 that used nalmefene, which is another opioid antagonist. Uh, it's very similar to naltrexone. It loads, doesn't load on the liver as much as naltrexone, so there are some advantages to it uh, when you use it in higher doses. Uh, this was done by Glover with military PTSD in the VA uh, back in the early 90s. Um, there was another study, again, done with uh, military PTSD in the VA by Maurer in the late 90s. And then in the late 90s, there was also a number of studies um, done by Martin Bohus and Christian Schmal uh, in Germany with borderline personality disorder and PTSD, um, where they used naltrexone and found a significant reduction in traumatic uh, stress symptoms, especially dissociative symptoms. Um, naloxone, uh, which is most of you are probably familiar with is uh, another opioid antagonist uh, that is usually administered um, by injection. Uh, Nuller uh, used it for depersonalization disorder and had significant effects in uh, decreased depersonalization. Um, then it's been used uh, with uh, PTSD by Lubin et al. Uh, they had some positive effects, but usually they found that the dosage was limited by adverse side effects. Uh, and then again, there's another study by Simeon and Nutelska with 
depersonalization disorder where they had some success with uh, opioid antagonist naltrexone in this case. Um, now, low-dose naltrexone uh, was first uh, used by myself uh, in early 2000, and I'll talk in more detail about that. And uh, I wrote about this with uh, Frank Corgan in our 2014 book, and Weepke Pop uh, did a more controlled uh, series of case studies uh, with low-dose naltrexone in individuals with uh, dissociative symptoms and traumatic stress syndromes. Uh, so the Papa and Willer study in particular looked at dissociative disorders and complex PTSD uh, on low-dose naltrexone. 11 out of the 15 patients had immediate positive effects, and 7 out of 15 had a lasting helpful effect. There was a clear perception of both surroundings and their inner life, increased uh, assessment of reality and the capacity to deal with it, an increased awareness and perception of their own body, uh, positive mood effects, and increased self-regulation. Uh, uh, and I think I've skipped here a few, so... Uh, we're low-dose naltrexone, Papa and Weller, in 2015, so we're going to the next slide now. Um, so the first time I used naltrexone with a client was a woman in her mid-30s. She had a polyfragmented dissociative identity disorder and had a history of severe ritualistic type of abuse. Uh, she had a history of endometriosis. She was in a dysfunctional marriage. And essentially, uh, therapy was at an impasse. There was no further progressing in, in therapy. And at the time, I came across the Bohus study, um, and uh, I consulted with her physician, and he decided that it was uh, okay to prescribe the dosage uh, that was used in that study, which was naltrexone, 50 milligrams four times a day, and which is 200 milligrams a day, fairly high dosage, uh, higher than what's usually prescribed uh, for alcohol abuse. And... So using this high dose of uh, naltrexone, there was quite a dramatic effect on dissociative symptoms. So they massively decreased. I was also doing a psychotherapeutic intervention called EMDR, eye movement desensitization processing, uh, reprocessing. And what was interesting is, uh, whereas before... Um, person was unable, had blocked to do EMDR processing, wasn't, was unable to benefit from it, uh, usually resulting in kind of depersonalization. Um, so 
suddenly EMDR processing worked uh, and moved through really smoothly. There was a complication in the sense that there, as this person was on uh, naltrexone, uh, she became aware of a part of herself that does not want to live. Uh, she also developed pneumothorax, which uh, is essentially a issue with your lungs and incapacity to breathe. And it's interesting that, in the sense that opioid activation is associated uh, with a decrease in breathing. So anyway, after developing pneumothorax, uh, this person was hospitalized and there were some complications in the hospital regarding anesthesia. When somebody is on a high dose of naltrexone, they don't respond to normal anesthetics, so there needs to be alternative ways uh, to induce anesthesia. Um, so as a result of these medical complications, uh, she went off naltrexone. And the interesting thing was actually the improvements uh, were maintained. Uh, once she went off the naltrexone, but uh, again, uh, at times, the social symptoms continued to interfere with uh, EMDR at times. So I wanted to try using uh, naltrexone prior to the session only, which then resulted in a series of case studies because uh, really what happened is uh, she was able to do EMDR while on naltrexone, but she wasn't able to do it when not on naltrexone using. So essentially, uh, the naltrexone blocked the dissociative response, which allowed her to benefit from psychotherapeutic interventions. So I presented this material at a conference and uh, a physician uh, who was in attendance uh, approached me about doing a series of case studies. So this was Bob Ferry and back in 2001 uh, we looked at people who had been in EMDR treatment for traumatic stress and uh, essentially people did not respond to treatment. So there was either derealization or significant somatization uh, that blocked further proceeding with therapeutic interventions. So. A number of other interventions had been tried to facilitate psychotherapy, like body-focused uh, psychotherapy, ego state, parts work, resourcing, and other interventions. They had all been unsuccessful. So there was really, again, this therapeutic impasse. So in these cases, uh, we used uh, naltrexone or naloxone prior to the EMDR session. And uh, what's important to keep in mind is all patients had a long-standing therapeutic relationship with good rapport. Uh, so the dosages used were 
between 25 milligrams and 125 milligrams of naltrexone 45 to 60 minutes prior to the session. The majority of them were 25 milligrams to 50 milligrams. Um, the naloxone was one milligram subcutaneous at the beginning of the session. Um, so, and that was kind of given immediately because naloxone has a very short half-life. Uh, so, 13 out of the 20 uh, completed EMDR processing successfully. Uh, 11 out of the 20, uh, this improved or eliminated the social symptoms. In five out of the 20, it decreased somatization or somatic symptoms. And what tended to happen after having used uh, naltrexone or naloxone prior to the EMDR processing, subsequent sessions, even without the opioid antagonists, uh, uh, seemed to be improved. So 14 out of the 20, there was long-term improvement after the session. Um, in six out of the 20, there were adverse effects, uh, and all of those were actually naltrexone, uh, and no therapeutic effect uh, was in two out of the 20. The adverse effects, uh, essentially, I would say, can be attributed to opioid withdrawal. So essentially what the assumption I'm making is a significant subset of individuals who have traumatic stress syndromes have a endogenous opioid activation in their system that results uh, when you administer an opioid antagonist that results in gastric distress, abdominal pains, nausea, vomiting. So these are essentially all opioid withdrawal symptoms. And uh, these were much more likely with naltrexone than with naloxone. Um, and the difference probably being, in my mind, is that naltrexone is administered orally uh, versus and naloxone is administered by injection. Now, there are a lot of opioid receptors in the gut, uh, so I think uh, when you take the opioid antagonist orally, uh, you induce though, that withdrawal response in the gut, which is the nausea and vomiting you get. Uh, so one-third uh, of the cases in our sample uh, that were administered naltrexone had significant uh, withdrawal symptoms uh, of a gastric nature. Thank you for listening to this presentation. All past conference presentations can be found on our website, www.ldnresearchtrust.org.